listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Heidi Alexander and I'm here with Jared Correa. Both of us work for the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Program. We're your hosts for today's show, and we also host the Legal Toolkit and Lunch Hour Legal Marketing podcasts available on this network. We're here today to talk about the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct, which were officially and extensively revised on July 1st, 2015. The changes to the Massachusetts rules are heavily influenced by the most recent revision to the American Bar Association's Model Rules of Professional Conduct, which were last revised in 2013. Our guests today, Constance Vecchioni and James Bolin, are both experts on legal ethics in Massachusetts. Connie is Chief Bar Counsel for the Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers, which agency is responsible for investigating, evaluating, and prosecuting complaints of ethical violations brought against Massachusetts attorneys. Jim is a partner of the Massachusetts law firm of Brecker, Weiner, Simons, Fox, and Boland, LLP. He represents lawyers and law firms at Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers and Malpractice Matters, as well as providing counsel related to professional responsibility, practice and ethics, malpractice defense, and prevention and risk management. He was previously an assistant bar counsel at the Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers. So Jim and Connie, thanks very much for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. Pleasure. You're welcome. All right, everybody, fasten your seatbelts. We're going to talk legal ethics. So let's add a bit of a historical perspective here. The last set of sweeping revisions to the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct were adopted in 1998. What was the impetus then for the 2015 changes? Was it solely a desire to bring the Massachusetts rules into greater conformity with the ABA rules, or were there other factors in play? I think your suggested reason is basically correct, Heidi. There's a value recognized by lawyers and courts in having uniformity across the country in the rules of professional conduct to the extent possible in any event, and that's particularly so with more multi-state practice every year. The Massachusetts rules are not identical to the ABA model rules. Never look at model rules and think you know what any jurisdiction's actual rules are. But the Court Standing Advisory Committee on the Rules of Professional Conduct has as one of its operating premises to keep to the model rules unless there's reason to depart. Now, we were considerably behind most of the other jurisdictions in making the switch from basing our disciplinary rules on the old ABA model code of professional responsibility. That's the DRs if you were practicing 20 years ago uh, and changing over to the model rules of professional responsibility. The ABA adopted the model rules in 1983. Massachusetts didn't adopt our version until, as you just said, 19. 19- 98. So when the ABA made major revisions in 2002, the so-called E2K revisions, there wasn't much appetite here for undertaking another major set of amendments quite so soon, just as lawyers were finally getting used to what was then a whole new set of rules. Um, But the Standing Advisory Committee a few years after that did start its review of the 2002 changes, and then as the committee was concluding its work, the ABA appointed another commission, the Ethics 2020 Commission it was called, so the decision was made here to wait and fold those amendments into the uh, package of recommendations to the court. So in 2012 and 2013, when the ABA did finish up the, uh, the Ethics 2020 work, those were changes that were 
mm, targeted uh, changes in law practice resulting from globalization and technology. Um, when they did that, we were then able to include those changes as well. So for the first time since 1998, we are caught up with the ABA. <laughs> Thanks, Connie. That makes a lot of sense. We appreciate that historical perspective. Um, now, this isn't the most these are the most recent changes to the ethics rules, but there was a prior change, I, I want to say two years ago, respecting fees and fee agreements before this sort of omnibus package was adopted. Um, Jim, can you talk a little bit about those prior changes to those particular rules? And then, Connie, I'm interested to know why you felt those rules need to be, needed to be changed prior to uh, making these 2015 revisions. Uh, well, Jared, there were not major changes in 2011, 2012, but they, the, the, the changes that did occur focused specifically on fee agreements. Yeah. And with a substantial impetus on making sure that fee agreements were uh, confirmed in writing, uh, lawyers had a, hit, a habit over many years of not getting their clients to even acknowledge an email or get an agreement in writing. And from many perspectives, not the least of which is uh, malpractice prevention, it was critical to have folks uh, countersign an agreement so you know what the contract is and uh, if there's an issue, it's, it's, there's going to be clarity. So that was the focus of the rules then. Um, it was rewritten a bit in 2012 to uh, make certain changes with respect to uh, slightly the contingent fee agreements and to clarify the rules. But that, that was the main focus in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, the also the first set of changes in 2011 – that arose, and the reason it was done earlier than the large package this year is that there had been a series of SJC decisions, particularly on contingencies, um, over, you know, the last, oh, from 2004 to 2008. And with the ABA basically, sorry, with the SJC basically directing its standing advisory committee to make changes to, uh, rule 1.5 that were consistent with those decisions. And then in 2013, as a result of another committee that the SJC had appointed, that was a committee actually on fee arbitration, and they came back with instead this recommendation that fee agreements should be in writing. So, again, that was another directive from the SJC. And there were a number of changes between 1998 and 2015 that came from various places, but a good portion of them were the result of directives from the SJC, either via cases, either via decisions, or um, because of work being done by other committees. Gotcha. Yeah, if we go back in time, for example, I mean, the Connie's right, absolutely. The, the, the case change focused the court's attention on fees, but going back in time, uh, I alter rules were, were changed, I think, according to the history back in 2004 yeah. in 2004 yeah, yeah. so th th there have been a number of changes over time but it's been but the major change is the one that was done this year well so moving on to some of the more recently adopted provisions um, there's a lot that has been made of this new common eight to rule uh, 1.1 uh, with respect to lawyers' obligation to keep abreast of technology as a component of practice competence. Um, and beyond that one comment, a number of the rule changes have been made in response to the pace of technology. And so how should lawyers engage in technology at, at a minimum level to meet the thrust of common eight and the spirit of the new rules? 
In two minutes or less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. I just say, go ahead, Connie. Two minutes or less. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Let me just take a quick stab at it. First, first of all, th- this is a comment to Rule 1.1. This does not impose any new obligations, but you'd be foolhardy to ignore it. And, and the and the comment says that you've got to stay abreast of technology. So some practical reasons, other than listening to podcasts like like this. Um, There are a number of resources out there. I'm going to give the first one, which is not self-serving, but it's LOMAP, the Massachusetts Law Office Management Assistance Project. Those of you who are running it, along with Rodney Dowell, have an extraordinary amount of built-up capacity now in terms of technology, and a lawyer should make themselves available uh, to to get that information from you. Um, There are also outside places like the Sedona Conference, uh, which is um, kind of a legal think tank, which... um, generates lots of material about how to stay abreast of uh, technology information. Electronic discovery rules uh, mechanisms and frameworks are really important to deal with, particularly in federal court and moving into state court, so one needs to be apprised of that. There are lots of online resources. There are CLEs, um, other colleagues, IT people who can assist. Uh, we're going to go off in a little bit talking about uh, data privacy rules and, and things of that sort. But there are blogs and social media groups um, that one can avail themselves of, and 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 there's a the ABA has a legal, technical, or technology section that's useful as well. One specific point of reference is the Mass Bar Association in 2012, in an opinion, uh, 12-03, set out an extended review of how lawyers may store and synchronize electronic work files uh, using such wonderful things as Google Docs. So that opinion is worthwhile looking at as well. I also urge folks to read the comments to Rules 1.1 and others, uh, particularly 1.1, I think it's comment 8, uh, the comments 7 or 8 and 9, which talks about ways in which technology expectations occur. So there are comments spread out throughout the rules and the kind of level of, of attention that lawyers need to spend uh, in being abreast of technology. So. Yeah, I'm just going to add a little bit and and backtrack a little bit. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure whether the obligations are new or not. There certainly are both malpractice and disciplinary consequences to failures to keep abreast um, technology. This isn't entirely new. I mean, the BBO disciplined a lawyer for incompetence in an e-discovery matter that led to spoliation several years ago, you know, before the rules changed. So it's not entirely new. It's just being made expressed now. And, you know, I think that that there are a variety of issues that everyone has to bring themselves up to speed on or they're going to fall into a trap. I mean, I won't go through every single one of them well i couldn't but i mean i won't even try to go through more than one but i will say that social media for example is you know a huge issue on in both directions you need to know both how you need to use it to be competent and how in what ways you can't use it and still be an ethical lawyer so you know this gets you coming and going these technology issues and uh you know you have to look for CLEs and other things and keep yourself uh, advised of what's required these days to be competent, you know, I mean, Googling 
that sort of thing probably is a minimum level of competence. And on the other hand, you can't be pretexting. You can't go friending the opposing party. So, you know, you need to see it on the going in the door and coming out the door, how you use technology. I don't doubt for a minute that there's going to be a malpractice standard that's going to come out of this. Um, If one fails to understand how to use a computer, um, if you're not doing uh, IOLTA reconciliations on um, uh, Quicken or QuickBooks, for example, if you're not Googling people, if you're not doing complex checks on the web and things of that sort. And there are dozens and dozens of state ethics opinions and cases now around the country on uh, technology errors and, uh, and values. Yeah. yeah, including the Massachusetts Bar Association opinion you mentioned. Let's stick with this question of technology and sort of tie it to confidentiality. Um, Rule 1.6 uh, now states that lawyers have to make reasonable efforts to prevent inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of or unauthorized access to confidential information relating to the representation of a client. And that tracks what a lot of state legislatures are doing in the realm of data protection. So what are reasonable efforts and when are attorneys allowed to disclose confidential information under the new rules? I mean, the whole issue of what are reasonable efforts gives me a huge headache, and I really don't claim to be, you know, completely... I don't think I've thought of all the possible combinations and permutations. A good example is... Yeah, a good example is unencrypted email. I mean, there seems to be a movement underway to reconsider the dangers of email interception. You know, I don't think that my office certainly isn't at the point of saying that all email has to be, you know, all business email has to be encrypted. But minimally, I think anything that is highly sensitive, medical records, for example, you know, needs to be encrypted in some form. Again, that's both a competence and a confidentiality issue. Um, As to what the exceptions are at this point, um, you know, by and large, the exceptions are the same as they have been. I mean, you know, I could go through them, but it would take me a while. I mean, it, you know, the, the exceptions are pretty much the same as they have yeah. been. They're found we in one point. Yeah, 1.6b. I would just say that there is added one new one, which is, well, there's added a, one that I don't think is very important, that there's now an exception to secure legal advice about your own compliance with, with the ethics rules. I think we always thought you could do that, but that's been made Express, but there's also a new one that's kind of interesting, and I think most ethics opinions have thought this existed already anyway, which is that you can um, uh, disclose confidential information to detect and resolve conflicts of interest arising from potential changes um, of employment, but only if it's not going to compromise attorney-client privilege or otherwise prejudice the client. So if you're leaving a firm or going to a new firm, um, you know, uh, conflict checks can, this enables conflict checks to be done. And it's just a practical solution to, uh, you know, it, it, it has to be an exception because nothing else is practical. Yeah, yeah. There, there is, uh, in 1.6, in, in comment 18, there are some factors set out therein on ways to determine the reasonableness of the lawyer's efforts for protection. So I urge folks to take a look at that. There are, uh, aside from the data privacy laws, and uh, there are now, as anybody who does real estate work knows, that the federal bank regulations now require encryption, you know, Zix Corp uh, <laughs> encryption or what, at some level like that. 
yeah. and you cannot communicate information that is not in that form. Emails are always dangerous, but that's essentially the basis. Taking a look at that comment would be very useful, comment 18 to rule 1.6. And, of course, there are other rules that govern client confidentiality. So if we take a look at uh, rule 5.3, attorneys have an obligation to safeguard their client confidences when they delegate or outsource work. And obviously, outsourcing has become more and more popular. Um, So, Jim, can you give us some practical pointers for lawyers who outsource work so they don't step on any ethical landmines? Well, think first about what the obligations are under 5.1, There's a duty within each law firm and even in a solo firm for, for subordinates for lawyers and uh, in firms with more than one lawyer who or others who may be a partner or have comparable managerial authority, which is a new change in the rule. Uh, they, they have to manage the firm in such a way that folks are complying with the rules as best they can. The court, in my opinion, wisely did not extend discipline to entire law firms like they have in New York and New Jersey, but they have extended uh, responsibility to those with managerial authority. In the, the second part of that is in supervising others, which includes outsourcing. You've got the following issues, and think about this in practical ways with no disrespect intended to any other country, if you're hiring somebody in country X, you've got to think about how in the world you're going to be able to supervise them. How do you know the quality of the work? How well have you vetted them out? Due diligence requisites uh, exist in determining whether they're competent, uh, whether there's, uh, I think the negligent referral standard is going to be applied in these instances um, because there's a risk if you're bringing somebody on to do paralegal work, let alone outside counsel, there's a tort standard that's going to be applied. You ought to have some contractual engagement. Recognizing, for example, in the EU, there, the definitions of uh, attorney-client privilege and confidentiality are different from that in the United States. And it, it, it leads to an entire morass of how do you possibly supervise, how do you know the quality of the work, and how do you regularly keep in contact. Just because it's, uh, it, it's cheaper doesn't mean it's necessarily very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just add to this, Heidi, that everything Jim said is exactly correct, but 5.3 has to do with when you're out, outsourcing to non-lawyers. And the equivalent, the parallel rule, if you were outsourcing to other lawyers, are uh, comments 6 and 7 to Rule 1.1. So, again, it's a competency issue. And the considerations are very similar, you know, to what Jim just described when you're, you know, hiring uh, uh, non-lawyers outside your firm. Similar considerations in terms of how will they comply with your ethical obligations if you are outsourcing to lawyers who aren't Mm -hmm. in your firm. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me, just, let me just add one piece on the outsourcing business sure. because having insurance to cover outsourced lawyer and non-lawyer work is a very complicated matter because the insurance requirements are not necessarily the same in other states or in other countries. So I think the first thing folks ought to do is check with their carrier and see what the exposure potential is in, in getting involved. You, you may end up with something like Lawyers of London with an international policy if you do enough of that work. The Massachusetts Board of Bar Overseers prosecutes a not insignificant number of complaints related to trust accounting. So, Connie, can you highlight some of the major changes to Rule 1.15 and what they mean? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, You know, 
trust accounting is really the third rail of bar discipline is is the easiest way to get yourself in serious difficulty without having any ill intent. So let's talk a bit about what those changes were. The first one has to do with advances for fees and expenses, and this is the change that probably has the most everyday significance. Rule 1.15b has been amended to require that advances for fees and expenses received from clients must now be deposited and held in an IOLTA or other trust account to be withdrawn only as the fees are earned or the expenses are incurred. These changes conform us to the ABA model rule. So as to advanced fees, all that the change is doing is making express something that's been the case law in Massachusetts for a long time, which is that retainers have to be deposited to your IOLTA or some other trust account. You can't deposit a retainer, meaning an advanced fee that you're going to earn hourly. You can't deposit that to your operating account or your personal account or put it in your pocket. But before these most recent changes, the prior Massachusetts rule contained an exception now repealed that permitted advances for costs or expenses to be deposited to operating or business accounts. And what that did was create complicated and necessary problems in accounting uh, for expenditures. Um, you know, lawyers would get confused as to whether the expense money was in their business account or in their trust account and, you know, would end up paying expenses out of the trust account when the money was in the business account, which meant they were probably drawing on somebody else's money. So, under the amended rules, you have to account for advanced expenses in the IELTA or other trust accounts in the same manner as for all other trust funds. So, to take a typical example, um, you've got a personal injury case on a contingent fee basis, but the client advances money to pay for an expert witness or for medical records, that type of thing. You now have to deposit that money to the IELTA account. It has to be identified in the main check register um, as being for that client. Uh, an individual ledger has to be created for the case, and those those expense funds can only be withdrawn if the expenses are paid. But, of course, the converse is also true if it's the lawyer or the law firm who's advancing the costs, expenses have to be paid uh, with the lawyer's own funds from the operating or business account. So I think it's pretty straightforward if your client has giving you the money up front, it has to go into your IELTS account. If you're advancing the money, you pay it from your business account. On this issue of advanced fees, there is a new comment that explains, and this is consistent with what Massachusetts practice has been, that flat fees are not required to be deposited to trust accounts, clarifies what constitutes a flat fee. If it's deposited to a trust account, it's subject to the same accounting requirements. If it's deposited to a business or personal account, that must, doesn't mean that it's exempt from the requirement of Rule 116D that any unearned fee has to be refunded. So if you're paid a flat fee of $2,500 for you know, an OUI case and the client terminates the representation the next day, 
you know, you're going to have to refund any unearned portion of the $2,500, regardless of whether you put it in your trust account or your business account. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two changes are easier, I think. Um, if you are the fiduciary as well as the lawyer in a matter, so or just the fiduciary in a matter, so you're the uh, what's now called the personal representative of an estate, what used to be called an executor or a guardian or something like that, and you have an individual trust account for that purpose. Uh, There's a new comment, 6A, that clarifies that consistent with the requirements of the rules regarding uh, the rules in Rule 115 regarding billing, a lawyer who represents uh, him or herself in a fiduciary capacity has to create a bill or an accounting to justify payment prior to or contemporaneous with any withdrawal of fee from the estate account or any other funds that they hold as fiduciaries. I think that's pretty straightforward, and it's to avoid this problem of lawyer fiduciaries thinking, oh, you know, I must have done some work, I must have earned uh, this much money, and not actually doing the arithmetic before deciding what they should pay themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And the final change to Rule 115, um, and this came from the court, this was a directive from the SJC, that if you are opening an individual trust account, so it's not an IALTA account, for IALTA accounts there's always been a notice that's required to be provided to the bank and the IALTA committee when you open an IALTA account. There's now a notice that's required to be provided to the bank when you open a non-IALTA trust account, like a an estate account or a guardianship account. Um, and the form for that you can find on the BBO website. All right, that was pretty extensive, Connie. We can give you a break now. Um, <laughs> okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit about client consent and its acquisition, which is a major theme running through these rules revisions. Um, there's a new definition for confirmed in writing and for informed consent, and those terms are applied at various points in the rules. So, Jim, can you talk about the practical effects of what this revised consent excuse me, regime is going to be like? Well, I'll try. First of all, what used to be the definitions under Rule 9.1 are now 1.0. That's the terminology. Confirmed in writing is 1.0C. Informed consent is 1.0F. And they're defined, and I urge folks to look at those. Um, I have a very old-world view of getting things in writing. There are a half a dozen rules or so, most of them in you know, the ones, 1.5 for fees, the conflicts rules, 1.7, 1.9, 1.11, 1.12, in the new rule on prospective clients that require specifically certain consents to be confirmed in writing. Mm. Informed consent shows up in many other rules and not necessarily required to be in writing, but I urge folks to do so. It is kind of insane not to confirm advice or an agreement or a change of tactic or a limitation of scope or an understanding or a conscription of, uh, of terms or a uh, um, particular kind of change in, in plan or uh, conduct that you're going to go off and engage in and you want to get the client's consent on or is required to get it on. I yeah. think it should be in writing so that you have a history. And that's really the practical effect of this. It's uh, intellectual laziness not to get something confirmed in writing. It's very bad uh, practices, not what everybody calls best practices these days. And it's a definite malpractice red flag. So that's the real practical effect of, of the consent yeah. rules. Yeah. 
and it hopefully will avoid these he said, he said, he said, she said, she said, she said arguments <laughs> over exactly what was disclosed when it was merely, you know, an alleged oral consent. Not just did the lawyer tell you they had a conflict, but did the lawyer explain what the conflict was, you know, sufficient for the client to make a judgment as to whether to waive it or not. And I think that for the, uh, you know, what this means when you talk about informed consent confirmed in writing is not just that you can't just say, oh, yes, I waived the conflict, signed client. It really has to explain, you know, it's been told to me that here's the potential conflict and I'm waiving it, you know, enough so that there could be a judgment made whether the consent is informed. So, so since Connie and I look at things from the other end of the plate, which is <laughs> after they go bad, that's often yeah. what we end up getting involved in, and I've done a, an enormous amount of expert witness work, it is almost universal that problems, particularly in conflict areas, arise because there has not been a sufficient writing. Now, mm. informed consent in and of itself is very hard, and that's a topic for another day. And if yeah. you ever try to get an advanced waiver uh, in a, you know, a large firm with large clients to get informed consents, uh, judges look at those strangely uh, throughout the country, and there's no clear law, and it is what you do. But the more you do, the better, and there's no reason not to confirm major events in writing. And we try to take care of the other end of that. <laughs> but you can lead a horse to water, you know. <laughs> but yeah, Thank you. But you, can't, but, but, but you can't make it think. That's right. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it think. <laughs> All right, let's change gears a little bit and let's talk uh, some about advertising. Attorneys get very wonky about advertising because of the ethics rules. And there are some attorneys out there who don't want to advertise, especially online at all. Um, obviously, I think that's a pretty extreme example, but I think that posture is mostly grounded in a lack of understanding of the rules. So uh, it would be helpful if we could unpack this a bit. If you two could talk about some of the major changes to the advertising rules, and then particularly how that affects online advertising. Uh, you see a lot of Q&A websites, for example, and lawyers use that to advertise, but they're really having what amount to, it seems, direct conversations with potential clients over the Internet. Um, so general uh, update on the rules, and then what are your thoughts particularly on online? Well, I'll start with the general update, which is yeah. that uh, some of the changes are just updates to reflect technological and other changes since the rules were last revised, which for the advertising rules was 1999. Um, and we actually did a better job in 1999 than a lot of states did. I mean, we were using terms like computer access rather than trying to be too specific. But, you know, in 1999, nobody foresaw Facebook, much less Snapchat, whatever oh, that yeah. is. So uh, <laughs> the language now is even more generic. It says things like electronic communication, and it deletes examples that were out of date, like bulletin board or chat group. Um, beyond that, uh, let's see, they uh, we've eliminated the requirement that uh, advertisements, letters of solicitation, and other written and electronic communications be retained for two years. There was a consensus that in today's fast-changing media environment, retaining copies of websites and such was basically impossible. So that's gone. I'm, as bar counsel, I'm a little sorry about that, but I understand what the problem was. Um, the definition of what constitutes a claim of specialization has been loosened. Um, so I think that's good news for new lawyers or for people yeah. changing practice fields. Um, you're now allowed to 
put your name next to an area of law without it constituting a claim of specialization. You can say Larry Lawyer Real Estate, and you're not saying you're a specialist in real estate. Um, I think that's a good change. Um, so those are the big ones, I think. Yeah, great. Um, you know, I'll just take a quick gander, gander at your question about Q&A websites and the intersection of solicitation and online advertising. I mean, a Q&A website, if I understand it correctly, is that a consumer posts a question and the lawyer responds, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. what you're describing? Yeah. I mean, much. well, that's not a solicitation. I mean, the consumer reached out to the lawyer. And yeah. whether it's a good idea, you know, to be giving advice off the cuff like that without, you know, knowing anything more than what some layperson has put in a question online is a whole other, you know, area that we could spend an hour on. But it's not a solicitation. It should, might be stupid, but it's not a solicitation. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> Do you have anything to add about online advertising and uh, some of the practical tips you have in that realm? Well, let me try to distill it into two phrases. One is, leading off from what Connie just said, you can almost never get in trouble if you're responding to an inquiry to you. Uh, I've always viewed that as the street running one way from the client to the lawyer. If you're, you can advertise, you can express yourself in all sorts of media, but if somebody comes back to you with an inquiry, then it's free game. So you want to just keep that in mind in terms of how it gets generated. The second one is a standard that's never changed. And, it's, and it really ends up being the keystone for malpractice and disciplinary cases. If you're telling the truth, it's really much easier to defend. If you're lying or making a misrepresentation, that's the standard that will kill you. So if you, Connie may remember this from many years ago. There was a lawyer who had a wonderful, then in those days it was letterhead, that said any court, anywhere, anytime. Right? Well, that's not possible, of course, <laughs> because you're not admitted anywhere, anytime. So yeah. why go off in that direction? I know that the world, everybody thinks that CNN and, and ESPN drive the world, and this is 24-7. But if you're making a statement that's stupid and indefensible, then you're going to get in trouble. This isn't just a question of staying above or below the radar line. Jim Sokolow, for example, who's been a longtime advertiser and has done it very well, has yeah. been above the radar line for years. But the things that are said are accurate and true. And so folks may not like it, and you may, not, you may try to legislate taste. But if you're saying something that's incorrect or wrong, that's when... It doesn't matter where you are on the radar line. Another lawyer will complain. Clients almost never complain. Another lawyer will complain generally. And yeah. if you make a misrepresentation to a client, then you're going to get Connie's attention. And my, my defense, such as it is. <laughs> Thanks. So in, in wrapping up here, Jim, I'm going to come back to you for a moment. Practically speaking, how are these rules going to affect attorneys on a day-to-day basis? Um, you know, are there things that lawyers need to make in terms of changes and to, in terms of what they do uh, for their business? Um, and, and then are there particular rule changes that you would highlight as traps for the unwary? And Connie, obviously, if you have something to add here, please do. Well, let me jump on, on that in two ways. One, one I, I always speak against self-interest because, you know, I've been very busy for very many years by lawyers screwing up. So that's a wonderful thing. But obviously, in the public interest, I am wearing that hat completely. Read the rules. It's not that hard. It's not an enormous burden. That's number one. Number two, the things that Connie and I have talked about today, and you've talked about as well, are really quite straightforward and are not that difficult. And to, to refocus for a second on one of them, put things in writing. It eliminates the memory problem. You don't have he said, she said, etc. And 
you also make it very clear what to do. Our job as lawyers is to be clear. That's what I think our primary, one of our primary jobs is. The second one is I want to talk about a rule that we haven't looked at. It's a new rule, in addition to all the stuff we have talked about, is Rule 1.18, which is the prospective client rule. It's been an ABA rule for, for a while, and the SJC has now adopted it. And th there are enormous numbers of contacts. You get them through emails. You get them through the website. Uh, you get folks inquiring, and they are a prospective client. And so I, I'm not going to read the rule out loud. I, I think folks just ought to take time and look at it and look at the comments to the rule as well. And it talks about what information is confidential, what information is private, whether there's an attorney-client relationship, whether you should have a click-through on your website that says, you know, unless we have a signed agreement, we have no agreement, what you can do with the information, whether it causes a conflict, whether it doesn't cause a conflict. Those are the really important issues. Um, I see conflict stuff coming up weekly uh, and have for many, many years, and so I think that's a good focal point. Yeah, I think we've covered um, a lot of the main areas. I really want to harp on this confirmed in writing for conflicts. I think that is yep. a trap for the unwary, as you're calling it, that that has, I mean, I think people are getting used to now the change from two years ago that they have to have written, their fee arrangements have to be in writing. Um, and I hope that they will similarly adjust to the fact that conflict waivers have to be in writing. I think that's, you know, probably the biggest day-to-day change that people should be aware of. Otherwise, I think we've mostly covered everything, and Jim is right. Read the rules. Call our office. We take questions Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoons, 617-728-8750. Uh, uh, obviously, talk to the two of you. And, um, you know, I think with those uh, pieces of advice, people will probably uh, be okay. We do have some information about the rules on our website as well. I mean, some articles. We have links to all the orders that the court has put out and to the um, links to a red line copy of the rules. So there's a lot of information on our website about these changes. There's some articles on our website about the changes. And we're happy to take questions on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoons. Uh, unlike yeah. Donald Trump, I will not be giving out Connie's cell phone number. <laughs> <laughs> That's good of you. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll second the fact that the Board of Borrowers Year's website from Massachusetts has a ton of useful information, uh, including an FAQ page and an articles repository that I think is pretty useful in fleshing out uh, some of the issues within the rules. So we've covered a lot of ground, obviously. This will complete our magical mystery tour through the brave new world of Massachusetts legal ethics. Uh, Connie uh, gave some information about her program. Um, Jim, do you want to talk a little bit about your practice, or do you have enough work these days? <laughs> this is the shameless commerce division. Um, <laughs> yes, this is the uh, uh, shameless promotion period of the podcast. Have at it. You're nice to ask. Uh, when a partner of mine created the law firm, he captured the name Legal Pro. So if folks want to go to www.legalpro.com, that's our website. And you'd be glad to help out if I can. And uh, Connie and I have been both doing this for a very long time, and I think we're both still happy practicing. So um, thank you very much for inviting us. Oh, our pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. We, we really appreciate it. Um, and, and thanks to everyone out there, of course, for listening to us. Um, you know, you may have uh, began listening uh, and we're trembling, uh, but we hope that this interview with 
these experts. It's helped quell some of your concerns and it's served to answer some of your questions about legal ethics. So with that, I'm Heidi Alexander with Jared Correa, and this has been another edition of Special Reports on the Legal Talk Network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.